Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. Uh, I'm Nick, a partner at Notation Capital. Hi, I'm Alex, partner at Notation Capital. And uh, I'm Naval, not a partner at Notation Capital. <laughs> you you over, you pre-introduced yourself, but um, you you. Uh, you ruined the surprise. Um, Sorry. Uh, so we have uh, Naval Ravikant here today with us, which we're super excited about. Um, he doesn't need too much of an intro. Uh, I think most people listening to this will, will know who you are. Uh, he's the founder and CEO at AngelList. Um, he previously founded, uh, was a founder at Opinions and Vast. He's been a venture partner at August Capital. He's run his own uh, seed fund mm-hmm. called HitForge. That's I believe. correct. Yeah, the HitForge. Yeah. Um, and uh, in addition to running Angelus, Naval's a uh, very active angel investor, and uh, as well as an LP in a few venture mm-hmm. funds, which we can talk a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not an LP in venture funds anymore. You guys are among the sole exceptions. Okay. Because uh, yeah, I, I get access to a ton of deal flow myself, um, and I'm sort of in the venture business myself, so I'm not really looking. So for other people to invest my money, especially in private uh, deals, I'm very good at doing that myself or good enough. Um, you guys are an exception for me because number one, you were in a, you're in a geography where I don't normally operate, which is New York. Um, you're also pre-seed, which is just a fancy way now, I think, of saying Series A. Uh, and so I think that's kind of where the market is headed anyway. Or saying seed. No, I think it's A. So I think basically what happened was there used to, I'm old enough to remember when it used to be just Series A and there was no seed. Wow. There used to be friends and family and then there used to be A. <laughs> and then guys like me and Dave McClure and Mike Maples and Steve Anderson and a whole bunch of other good, smart people came up and started doing, uh, First Round Capital actually was probably among the first. Yeah. Uh, cleverly named First Round Capital. Uh, and we sort of created the seed category, but that was just, you know, Series A used to be first institutional money in. And so we started making it first institutional money in. And then, of course, a Series A investor on Sand Hill Road is not going to go to their LPs and say, oh, yeah, we know this whole time you were backing us because we were first institutional money in, but now we're second institutional money in, and so now we're Series B. They're not going to do right. that, obviously. So they held on to the Series A name, so the seed name was created. Uh, and now, just like seed is no longer first institutional money in, now it's an accelerator or a pre-seed fund yeah. It is slipping to you guys. Um, so I think that's really interesting and exciting. And this is just part of the larger, broader trend that companies just need less and less capital to get started. Uh, and so therefore they need more help, more hands-on people, less capital, more insight, more labor, more work, more advice. Uh, and uh, I, just, I just think that's where the sweet spot in the business is moving to. And so I wanted to get there uh, earlier. And so the easiest way to do it was to back you guys in New York. So that's fascinating. I think that's the first time anybody's called us a Series A fund. You are in the Series uh, A business. It's just that right. the people who hold on to the Series A name aren't going to give it up. And the people who hold that to the seed name aren't going to give it up. And in fact, I think pre-seed, it's, it's the best of the worst that we have as a name to stick with. But in an ideal world, um, you know, you'd have, we, would, we would start calling it something else, something more accurate. Like, uh, for example, we could rebrand pre-seed to be initial capital. Mm-hmm. We're initial capital. 
right? That would get the point across. All, all power and influence and success in this business derives from being the first institutional money in. Because if you're the first one in, then you win the trust of the entrepreneur, you win the trust of the founder. Like we had YC, you know, it, Dropbox often still calls itself YC backed Dropbox or YC backed Airbnb, right. you know, called itself Sequoia backed or, you know, or Trinity backed or whatever. So uh, the, the power goes to the first money in. And the same way, you guys will put the first money in. You will help influence the founders on their corporate structure, on who their advisors are, who their lawyers are, what general strategy they take, maybe their first few hires, where they set up shop. And then you'll also uh, direct them to your friends and trusted uh, comrades and, and good, good investors, your short list of good investors for seed investors. And then they direct them to A investors and they direct them to B investors. It's like if you, if you look at, Venture funds, right? The Series B people are always trying to network with the Series A people. Yeah. They're not trying to network with the Series B people, the Series C people. The Series A people are always trying to network with the best seed investors. The best seed investors are trying to network with the entrepreneurs. But I think it's going to move to the seed investors are not trying to network with the pre-seed investors. Yeah. So, you know, every seed investor wants to network with the YC partners. Every seed investor will want to same way network with you guys. So I think that being in a pre-seed situation, even though you start out small and you look like you're not serious and you have small amounts of capital and you're not important, mark my words, you stick at this business and 10 years from now, every seed fund is inviting you to dinners. Every, everyone's trying to get your attention because you're helping form the DNA of the company. It's a very, very important and interesting position. And like classic disruption, you can do that because you're not already rich. It's like if I if you're talking to a Sand Hill Road venture person who's been very successful, you know, they're personally worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Their funds are hundreds of millions of dollars. They're not going to suddenly switch to a five million or ten million dollar fund writing hundred K checks because that's beneath them. That doesn't make them enough money. That doesn't, you know, pay their bills. That doesn't move the needle for them. Uh, but you guys can. You can disrupt from below, just like the founders disrupt from below. It's interesting that you say it though, because I think that you know what you say implies that that investors have a bigger impact on on a company than than some people might believe um, positive or negative I mean it's related to the question that we discuss a lot which is you know can investors add value I don't know honestly yeah I think, I think, I think it's a very similar to universities where they add a lot less value than they pretend they do mm-hmm. yeah uh, but they still add some value right so for example does Stanford turn stupid kids into smart kids? No, <laughs> right? Does MIT turn non-mathematicians into whiz kid mathematicians? No, but it sends a strong signal. Uh, it does a filtering function. Uh, it does some socializing and there's some education along the way. Um, so I think investors do make a difference in the margin and a lot of the difference comes from the money and the signaling and from the network that they connect you into. But will an investor, is, is an investor like the most important factor? No, the founders, the founders and the market and the early employees and those kinds of things dominate the outcome so much that I think investors only matter on the margin, but they do matter. And if you're a good founder, you want to make every little bit count. So, you know, if you're a smart, if you're a really smart, ambitious kid, you're probably going to choose MIT over your local school uh, because you, you understand the value of the brand. But can you be 
a really successful, smart person who didn't go to MIT? Absolutely. Can you be a great uh, entrepreneur who doesn't have name brand investors? Absolutely. And sometimes you see the, the name brand investors come in later. In that sense, a seed investor's job is harder. You have to pick the kids before they're great, right? So you're, you're not so much like college here. You're probably a little bit closer to junior high school. <laughs> like a, yeah, like a magnet junior high school or high school that's, that's trying to uh, assess people and pull them in. Um, yeah, what's, what's interesting about venture is that there is this cyclicality to it where you constantly have these funds raising more money and moving farther and farther down the stack, which constantly is letting basically new folks come in at the very bottom and uh, and invest capital. Do you ever do you ever see that changing, or that's just it's it's structural to the nature of the business because the way venture managers are compensated is mm. by the amount of funds under management and by returns, but it ends up being more about the amount of funds under management. So the incentive is always to raise larger and larger funds. And then slowly they leave the business that made them successful. So they start in a seed business, their next fund is basically a Series A size fund, their next one is a Series B size fund. And it takes a lot of discipline to hang out at your level of competence. And, and a few fun, funds do that. I think some of the better, longer lasting funds turn away capital. Um, which is quite impressive, but that's kind of how they keep their position. But because the industry itself is always growing also, and the individual companies need less and less money to get started, it's always creating new opportunities. So I, I think it's fantastic. It's great. In, in an ideal world, you know, what percentage of the world's investable capital do you think goes into startup companies? It's some minuscule fraction. Yeah, it's not even a small. Yeah, it's I think private even. equity is a very small portion of all assets allocated and venture is a very small portion of private equity. That's right. So that's pathological. That's broken. I mean, we're living in an incredibly innovative world where almost all the things that move the needle in our lives were invented or improved in recent memory. If not invented, then drastically improved by, by some company. Right. So I think the percentage of the world's investable capital that will go into creating new businesses, whether it's through the venture model or whether it's through other growth models, is just going to continue to increase. And the world is flush with cash. There's infinite capital out there looking for return. It's just they don't understand venture. They're scared of it. They don't understand seed. They don't understand pre-seed. Uh, they haven't seen the returns yet. But I think if the seed, like in my class of seed funds, when I look back in 2000, I was in the 2007 class when I did a seed fund. And of the 10 and that was so, hit, that was hit, hit forge. forge was in there. Yeah, I raised hit forge in 2007. I invested it till, until 2012. And if I look at that class of funds that was with me in that group, you know, the best one was probably lowercase capital. Chris Sacker yeah. crushed it. I don't even know the numbers, but we're talking like triple digit multiple yeah. um, is, is what will probably finally come in at. Um, Chris did an amazing job. I was probably somewhere on number two or number three or somewhere in there. Probably. So tell, tell us how those got going around 2000. Why did, why did you decide to be, why did you decide to formalize it as a fund? And yeah. Then how did you yeah. I mean, to finish the thought, I think all those funds, even the worst performing ones were like a three to five X return. The median was probably a six to 10 X. And there wow. were, there were funds in there that, you know, my fund will probably come in somewhere between 10 X and 20 X, depending on the final outcome, you know, not audited, et cetera. I'm not pitching for money. I'm just saying it's yeah. in that range. Um, so the timing was good because we had the guts to go out and do something that nobody else was doing at the time. And the things that were lacking was I saw a clear trend 
that number one, companies were getting far cheaper to build. You, you didn't need to host your own servers anymore in your own, uh, or build your, when I started Opinions in 99, we had to host our own servers in our office with a T1 line. We didn't have a data centers. Exodus wasn't even around. So this is pre-data center. And then data centers came up, then cloud services was making it much cheaper. And we so had, how much capital for Opinions did you need just to- We needed just $8 to million get, dollars to build and launch right. a website in 1999. Right. <laughs> okay. And it was a, trivial website you'd, you'd sneeze on it today like it's right. a terrible website <laughs> the initial incarnation right. right and this is before css so everything was html tables and layout we had to write our own deployment scripts there wasn't linux wasn't widely deployed so we needed sun servers for to handle the load That's which we had to pay oracle for database software because mysql wasn't that common. okay there go, there's your 8 million exactly and you had to and there was no open source stack that we could rely on so you had to write everything from scratch and then you had to market it well there was no google there was no facebook there was no social media there's no twitter so we ran an ad campaign like with billboards and buses so the costs were just so much higher i think people underestimate how much the costs have come down i mean my my rough order magnitude is that the costs have come down by a factor of somewhere between 100x to 1000x to building a web or mobile product and the market size at the same time right. when we launched it was 30 million desktop pc users in the u.s were using it at more than just work 30 million people in the U.S. were using desktop PCs at home. And even there, they were using it, you know, on a lot of them were AOL dial-up connections, and they were using it maybe an hour to a day at most. Um, and so your market size was a hundredth to a thousandth of what it is today when everyone has a smartphone in their pocket and there's billion more people than smartphones. Sorry, more smartphones than people. So in that world, your addressable, your leverage per dollar going into the market has gone up somewhere between a factor of a hundred thousand and a million. Wow. Think about right. that. It's gotten so much more effective. So the tech industry has revolutionized many things, but that includes the process of building, starting, and scaling a tech business and product. So, of course, there are a lot more tech companies out there. In the, in the 90s, uh, you know, in the 80s, there were maybe a few hundred companies started every year. Then in the 90s, there were probably a few thousand companies started every year. Now there's probably 10,000 or more companies started every year. Now, of course, how many of them become great is debatable, but lots more companies are getting started. That trend is not going to reverse. And, you know, it's funny, I saw a VC say the other day, like, you know, there's only a few dozen companies every year that are started that are worth investing in. Right. And I, that, are, that account for all the returns. And I remember when that same statement used to be made and said, there are only 10 companies a year. And I remember when that statement used to be made and people would say there's only three companies a year. And I'm sure there's a time when there's only one company a year. Right. So one of the things you can't get attached to is these truisms and start repeating them like they're God's honest truth when the actual environment is always shifting and, underneath. And for a long time, I think they also said that about venture. There's only five venture firms in the industry that matter that produce all of the returns. Yeah, that's complete BS. Uh, I don't know, is this censored or not? Can I say bullshit? Yes, (laughs) yes. Because because there's, uh, first of all, there's probably about uh, 20 to 30 great venture firms today that matter. Um, Like great, top tier that are probably throwing up top tier returns. Um, And five years ago, they were probably about 15. And, you know, uh, 10 years before that, they were probably about 10 or 5. So that number has been increasing. Secondly, most of the most of the firms in these buckets now are upstarts. They didn't exist a little while ago. And and again, it's like clever definitional game that has been played with the LPs of what counts as a venture firm and what doesn't. But sure, Sequoia is great, Benchmark's great, Greylock's great, all that. We know all that. They've been around for a while. But what happened to all the firms that used to be in that list that fell off the map? 
there's a bunch that fell off that map. I'm going to spare them the embarrassment. I don't know how to name them. Yeah. There's a bunch that fell off the map. And there's a bunch that came up. Like, where was First Round Capital? Where was True Ventures before? Where was, uh, where was Andreessen Horowitz, right? That didn't exist. Uh, Menlo, you didn't used to be, you know, that big of a firm. Now they've got Uber, right? right. So, there's, so you're only as good as your last deal, right? So, so I think great firms sometimes come and sometimes go. There seem to be a few exceptional ones like Sequoia and so on that always hang out the top. Um, which is very, very impressive. But uh, it, it's sort of like going to the Kentucky Derby and watching the horses run the race. And at the end, you're like, what a complete waste of time. We should just have that top horse run. The rest of them wasted their time. <laughs> right. But you have to run the race to see who the best horse is. And I think the same way you constantly have to run the race between venture firms to see who the best firm is in this generation. And unfortunately, the LPs run out because the LPs are always used to looking backwards to invest forwards. And so they always miss out who the new up-and-coming horse is. And then by the time they decide, oh, that's the one I want to invest in, they're either that horse is smart and they don't raise a huge fund, so their fund is closed and it's taken up by the previous LPs, or they raise a much larger fund and they're in a different business. Mm -hmm. So the holy grail in this business is finding a team that can scalably and sustainably make money. Uh, and that, that's really hard. So how did you first get going in 07, 08? I mean, had you been, you'd been angel investing a little bit I around hadn't. that time? I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, so no, so, so the first investment you, you made, you went out and you raised ca yeah. outside capital for it. Yeah, I think my first investment was Twitter, actually. Um, <laughs> Your very first investment. Yeah. Wow. Uh, in the seed round. Uh, lucked into that one. Um, but it wasn't obvious for a long time because Twitter didn't really go anywhere for a while. But you had already raised your fund by then. Yeah, I'd raised, I'd raised a small amount of it. Uh, I was planning on doing an incubator. Okay. Uh, and that's why it's called a hit forge because mm. I thought I was going to do an incubator. And then I went and I saw YC and I thought their model was better. Um, PG called me and said, oh, you're a competitor. I said, no, I'm not competing with you. And he said, uh, you're smart. You're going to compete. <laughs> wow. And so he called me out right there. So I realized that there were some great companies coming out of YC. I met Dropbox early. Uh, I wanted to add them to my incubator, but they didn't need to join my incubator. Mm. Uh, they were just looking for an investment. I went to, uh, I got introduced to, or I heard about Twitter and I tracked down Evan Williams uh, and I saw the company. I was like, well, they don't need me to incubate them either. So I gave up on the incubator thing. I went back to my LPs. I asked for more money, which they gave me, and I started investing just straight up. Mm. And the hypothesis was, number one, the number of companies is going to increase. The Number two, the cost per company is going to decrease. Number three, they're more likely to be based out of San Francisco than the South Bay. Number four, when they hit, they're going to hit more and more nonlinearly than they had before because there are more users and the users are spreading word of mouth faster. And in my original pitch fundraising deck, in 2007, I use examples from MySpace and Evite as, and YouTube as examples of things that were growing faster and faster and faster. And this was, all, and I said, I don't know what the next one is going to be. Mm. And this is pre-Facebook. This is pre, you know, almost anything you'd care to name today that's interesting. I said, I don't know what the next big hits are going to be. But I do know that they're going to need less capital at the beginning than they have traditionally. They're going to grow faster and by the time they become big, it'll be obvious to everyone. So I have to get in when they're small. Um, I also sense that they're being start, started by younger and more creative people than they have been historically. Historically, the, one of the barriers to entry to starting a company was, you know, can you get money from a San Jose Road venture capital right. firm? Which means you had to get it, have an MBA at 
Harvard or something. Yeah, you had to have right. the right credentials, be right. the right networks, have paid your dues and all that. And that was happening more and more with, frankly, just younger kids coming straight out of school. And the person who made this bet more than anybody else was Paul Graham, and he got paid handsomely for it. Um, but it was it was obvious that you have to go to an earlier and earlier stage and bet on these people before they're proven. Um, and so then that's what the seed funds did. And in 2007, 2008, 2009, seed funds were actually in the seed business where they used to write checks to people with two guys and a PowerPoint or two gals and an idea and a dog and, you know, not much else. Yeah. And then somewhere around 2009, 2010, it started shifting to, well, I'm not going to invest in a pre-product seed companies to show me some product and today seed has gotten to show me traction right a seed investor now wants to show it wants to see traction and a product that's not seed that's what we used to call series a yeah actually we used to call that series b right in the old world series a was pre-product pre-traction series b was post-product pre-traction series c was post-traction that's how it used to be in the 80s and 90s yeah um so now we're now seed investors are applying the same kinds of criteria that series a and b historically used to do so true initial capital investing is done by accelerators and by pre-seed funds and by angels individual angels when did you decide you definitively did not want to be a venture full-time venture capitalist and continue to run Hitforge as a firm because obviously the fund did extremely well you could have raised many probably yeah. many funds afterwards when did you how did you decide that well know? i never decided to be a venture capitalist i don't want to be a venture capitalist <laughs> i don't i think it's you know if that's if that's what my tombstone says i failed yeah um not that there's not Interesting. I think there are some people who are extremely good at it and their lives are dedicated to it and they get a kick out of it. Um, you know, like uh, I've been lucky enough to be on boards with Mike Moritz and Ben Horowitz and John Doerr. And those guys are amazing venture capitalists and they love being counselors. And, you know, Jeff Fagnan, who's on my board here, um, amazing venture capitalist and loves what they do. I just get no, I get nothing out of dealing with the LP community. I'm not here to manage money and, you know, put money from, route money from person A to person B. Uh, I think that's interesting. It can be useful. But really, for me, I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Um, I wanted to do something more systematic. I wanted to build something that could make a difference. And so AngelList was a way to do that. Uh, while at the same time, sticking to what I'm good at, which is I'm not good at focusing on one thing and one product forever. Mm. I like being involved in many things. Uh, so AngelList is more just kind of a self-actualization of who I am. Mm. Uh, I don't think I would have ever, uh, you know, yeah, technically I was a VC, but I don't think I would self-identify that way. Right. So even early on at AngelList, you saw it as, did you see it as a collection of products that somehow fit together that served your need to be able to do a lot of things. I mean, I guess even in Hitforge, to a certain degree, there was a sense of you wanted to incubate and be a yeah. part of a number of different products. Yeah, too. I wanted to systematically remove the inefficiencies that founders face. Uh, and I wanted to systematically help and grow and be involved with the technology industry. Because I just love technology. I'm a technophile. At the end of the day, you know, if technology didn't exist, I would not be like a different kind of money manager. I wouldn't go from being a venture capitalist to mm. being a private equity guy to being a mutual fund person, right? So for me, it's about the technology first. And so being an investor is just a way to get involved with the smartest people building the coolest stuff that's going to make the biggest impact. 
and if I can do it with a platform at scale, that's even more interesting than doing it, you know, one, one checkbook at a time, one check at a time. And so Angel, this was originally started just by seeing this enormous inefficiency in getting the word out for your startup. And so I just wanted to get the word out on the deals. I, I wanted to share my deals. I didn't want them to be proprietary uh, information. Michael Lewis has a great saying where he says, the internet disrupts middlemen that make a living by having proprietary access to information. And I remember in uh, 2009 or 2010, I was at a cafe with another seed investor and he said, hey, let's do this deal before anybody else gets wind of it. <laughs> And I was like, really? Right. It still works that way? <laughs> we, we live in this day and age where the internet should have destroyed all of that. Yeah. And I get these are private transactions and their secrecy and all that, but there's still got to be a better way. I still hear people talk about proprietary and they, deal flow, though, all the time, right. and I'm shocked. Yeah. When, I don't think there's anything such thing as proprietary deal flow. I think yeah. it's proprietary access, which is mm. can you get in? But knowing it's about more about it. relationships than than information. Exactly, relationships and brand and and how helpful were you early on and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Angel, this started as a way of kind of democratizing that and opening it up and sharing it, and then we launched our talent platform, which is actually now quite a bit bigger than even the fundraising side. Um, and yeah, we just continue to work on it. To, to me, Angelus is just a way to take the parts of the business and the industry that are inefficiently handled offline and move them online through code and community. And there are things that are handled offline that will always be handled offline, like finding a great venture investor, getting good board advice, um, you know, doing that stealthy round of financing, maybe finding that critical co-founder hire or VP hire probably will happen offline for a long time. But things like you know, I want to find 10 good advisors in my space who can be small investors. Or, uh, you know, uh, for an LP, I want to inject capital at the earliest seed stage uh, behind operator angels who know what they're doing. Hmm. Um, or at the, uh, you know, I want, to, uh, I want to find good engineers who aren't in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, those kinds of problems, I think, can be solved much better online. Um, and so we built the online infrastructure to do that. And today we're the largest seed fund in the world. Uh, eventually we're the largest venture fund in the world. Um, we've got hundreds of operator angels investing their own capital on AngelList. Uh, we're putting in dedicated close to half a billion dollars of committed LP capital behind them. Uh, we're closing 50 deals a month online. Uh, we're tracking a portfolio of 900 deals that we've done to date. Um, and those are through the AngelList funds? Angelist syndicates, yeah. Angelist syndicates, syndicates are one-time pop-up funds for an angel to write a check into a deal. So if you normally, let's say you went and invested $10,000 at a time into your friend's companies uh, or your coworkers' companies, now you can put in 10K and raise another 100, 200, 300K from other friends, from our funds, uh, and, and get paid a carry. Um, so it's a lightweight carry-only model. It's on-demand. You don't have to be in the venture business, and the LPs don't have to commit to you for 10 years. Uh, they can just sort of evaluate on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. So we just built an infrastructure for that. Fred Wilson even talked about this a while back, where you know he could imagine himself someday just doing deals personally and then having right. LPs come behind him deal-by-deal. Because the internet makes it so easy to assemble capital and to sort of create an, uh, uh, an SPV around it or a structure around it. Um, so we enabled that with syndicates, and now we've done you know close to 900 deals, 50 deals a month, and uh, like I said, we have about half a billion dollars of committed institutional capital behind that uh, that exercise. Uh, 
And then we're also doing Series A's and Series B's. We do lots of private SPVs for VC firms that need to do their proratas. I know we've done some with you guys, but we've done with about half a dozen other venture firms. Also, um, we use the same model to run scout programs for later stage VCs who realize they need more of a seed or pre-seed presence. Um, and then the talent side is even bigger. Um, we have 16,000 companies actively recruiting, about uh, half a million candidates looking. We do, uh, I think, 15 or 16,000 mutual matches every week, introductions, uh, probably about three, 400 hires uh, every, every week, maybe 200. That's hard to track because it goes offline. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that we're now the number one recruiting marketplace for startups. Wow. So all the cool kids are hanging out and hiring and getting hired on the platform. And it's free, right? It's just so easy to make that work. And what, what's entertaining is all these VC funds that talk about like, oh, I have a recruiting shop. Oh, right. we've got a recruiter in-house. So I'm like, so how many hires do you place? I have yet to find a single VC fund that has placed more hires in a year than we place in two or three days. Um, just because of the, it's the massive efficiency and volume of going online. On the flip side, of course, they can place a level of candidate that you just can't meet online. Like if they want to place a COO or a VP of X, right? That's always going to happen better through a personal networking relationship online than online. How do you... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. I mean, that the, the talent marketplace has grown so quickly over the last year, year and a half, and, and the quality has ramped up so much. I mean, it's been... I think that the, the speed with which you became a player there was was amazing. I think do you, do you attribute part of that to how inefficient and and how how poorly the basically every other talent marketplace out there works and the way that it's the shocking way incentives yeah. work in terms of, of monetizing it, those. It's shocking to it's me so how, how uh, talent marketplaces out there work. Uh, if you look at LinkedIn, there's this weird third-party dance where the recruiter has to intermediate every relationship because that's the real customer. It reminds me of like how you know, if you ever watch like flowers in nature, the way plants replicate is like this third party, AKA B comes along and picks up the pollen and drops it from point A to point B. It's nature's three way. It's nature's menage a trois, right? But it's required for replication within that species. Uh, LinkedIn seems to have adopted a similar model in recruiting. Uh, and then you have places like Dice and uh, Indeed and all those are aggregators. Indeed and Simply Hired are aggregators. People like Dice and Monster are just like giant resume pasting boards and job pasting boards with no quality control. Um, so we set out to build the talent marketplace that we ourselves wanted to use. And so there, there's a couple of neat things on there. One is no recruiters, no third-party recruiters. It's only founders of companies and uh, recruiters working in-house for those companies and VPs in those companies who are recruiting. And you, ver- and you verify all those people. Well, if we, ca- if we get a yeah. report of it not being, right. A, right. Of it being a third-party recruiter, right. we kick them off. Right. Uh, then the candidates are on there directly. They have rich angelist profiles that uh, you know, have references, that have reviews, resumes, where they worked, who they went to school with, what kind of grades they got, what their impressive accomplishments are, what startups they started. It's a right community. It's people who want to work at startups. Uh, there's a level of transparency. We show how much money the companies raise. We show how much equity they're paying, how much right. salary they're paying. I think that transparency is a big... It's a big, big deal, yeah. And uh, and then it's it's double opt-in. It's like Tinder. Uh, you don't get introduced to a company unless you're interested, and they don't get introduced to you unless you're interested. In fact, our we have a mobile app called Angelus Jobs in the App Store, iOS App Store, and it's just swipe, swipe, left and right. Um, and the app even lets you start a direct live chat right there with someone that you match with. So it's almost too much like Tinder. <laughs> um, 
<clears throat> we have a lightweight ATS layer. Hopefully, there's not many founders that have confused the two. In the yeah, last exactly. Years <laughs> lead to an awkward conversation. Um, that would be awkward. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think our our UI is as slick as Tinder. That's because we're solving a different problem. But fundamentally, we approach it from the viewpoint of how do we just make it really easy for startups to hire great people, and we didn't worry about like how do you make money and how do you extract the most value and you know all those kinds of things. We just went straight for what the user wanted. Uh, and I think we were lucky in that we had this great community uh, at AngelList of lots of uh, aspirational founders, people who want to join companies, uh, who want to join startups. So now, um, as far as I know, like almost the entire startup community is using it. So uh, you preface this uh, this discussion by by saying you're not really an active LP, although you are a backer of a bunch of the AngelList. Uh, syndicate. And yeah, fund. I stopped doing that because of adverse signaling. So okay. what, I, what I do now is I, I co-manage some of these large institutional funds and those institutional okay. funds decide which leads to back and which deals to go into. So I'm on the voting committees, but okay. there are other people's committees. So it is sometimes difficult for uh, syndicate leads and we syndicate, um, we typically syndicate some portion of our pro rata mm-hmm. um, because we don't have a ton of reserves in the fund. Right. And um, it's hard to figure out how some of the funds on top of AngelList make decisions. Yeah. Um, particularly, you know, there's CSC, which is now, a, I think they're committed $400 million. That's right. The yeah, fund. there's Maiden Lane and there's a couple others coming Maiden on. Maiden Lane, yeah. right. So how, give us a little bit of insight into how some of those funds make decisions and, and plan to allocate, like, I mean, what I think is half a billion Billion dollars dollars. yeah yeah we have lightweight dashboards for these funds and they look online and they see who the lead investor is how much they're committing they see the company profile sometimes they get access to the deck and then they have an internal little discussion and they vote mostly they're going on signals of who the investors are how clean is their investment signal are they existing investors are they new investors how much are they committing what the valuation is what other companies in the space seem to be valued at Um, so they're just using that data and it's not I apologize, it's not that transparent to you, but they're looking at a lot of deals. So they'll look at two to three deals a day. Um, so it's a very fast turnaround. Is uh, there historical data on the platform now that helps them make some of those decisions? In theory, yes. I mean, we have lots of great data. We have recruiting data, we have funding data, we have outcome data. But in reality, the main piece of data you're relying on is you're saying, are there good external investors coming in for the first time and voting with their own capital? And do we think this can be a big market? It literally just boils down to that. Uh, and between those two things, we get votes from usually each fund has an investment committee of four people and three have to vote yes for the deal to get done. Um, after a while though, with some of the leads, uh, not you guys because you're doing pro ratas more, but uh, some of our lead investors you know, have great track records and seem to do really well over time. So the funds end up realizing, okay, well, if Tikhan Bernstein is leading this deal and you know, he's putting in 50K of his own money and he's had a couple of good hits, we're going to keep backing him for a while. We're not going to say no just because we have a different opinion. His right. opinion overrides. Would you, considering the data you have, and, and I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, but what are the what are the questions you have to navigate when you think about potentially publishing people's track records on AngelList, making it public, their performance numbers over time? Yeah, the performance numbers are just starting to come in, and the problem is that with the fund, with, with seed seed stage funds, it takes 
seven to 10 years for your track record to really come in. My fund was negative for, for the first you know, year, two years, three years. It wasn't, it wasn't good. Not so talk to us about that just for a second, because you mentioned that all the way at the beginning. Oh yeah, and I had a big loss in one company where I wrote an almost million dollar check uh, early on. And this um, is in 2007, 2008. Yeah, 2008, 2009 timeframe. Uh, and then uh, I had the small investments that really hadn't been marked up at the time. So it was hard to show big returns early on. So most seed funds follow what's called a J curve, right. which is they, it looks like a J because they lose money before they start making money later on. Um, so it didn't, it didn't look that great. So I think the same thing on AngelList, you know, you have to give people time for their portfolios to mature. In this business, you lose money before you make money. Your losers come in before your winners. The winners take a long time to mature. That's just the nature of the beast. And that's part of the reason why it still accounts for a small percentage of the uh, of the investable capital out there uh, because it's very illiquid, it's very opaque, and then it takes a long time to pay out. So one thing I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on because it's, it's something that comes up a lot and, and uh, LPs in particular have a strong opinion on it um, is that you know, we've heard uh, venture investors and LPs express frustration with a lack of liquidity related to companies, private, companies staying private for too long in their opinion. Um, and so, you know, they're not getting distributions, they're not recycling that capital, they're not seeing returns on it. Um, my question is whether, do you think that, that there are good reasons for that delayed liquidity in the market now and for, and good reasons for companies staying private longer? Or, or do you think there's something artificial happening there and, and it's not just the market working well? Yeah, I mean, it's two factors. It's uh, supply and demand, right? It's the demand from the companies that want to stay private longer because they don't want to deal with all the hassles of going public. And the hassles of going public have just gone up. Every time, you know, every, every 20 to 30 years, Wall Street shits the bed, you know, almost crashes the economy and then has to be bailed out because it's a big casino over there as far as I can tell sitting yeah. here on the West Coast. Yeah. And every time we have to bail the casino out, the taxpayers get angry and people say never again. So they pass a set of laws that has very little to do with making, you know, doing anything for Wall Street, but hurts the rest of the economy. And so the most recent example of this was Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, and that's just made it really hard for companies to go public. Um, and so I think the, uh, the, the companies that would have otherwise gone public uh, stay private longer. Now, to their credit, uh, Congress and the administration, the SEC, have been doing good things around reggae and crowdfunding and general solicitation to make this easier. So they are trying to not throw out the baby with the bathwater in this case. Um, but generally, that's why the companies have an increased demand to stay private. At the same time, there's been an increased supply of investors um, like the mutual funds and the hedge funds who are tired of being last in line and paying top dollar for these startups when they go public and not being able to participate in the value creation. Like by the time now a company goes public, most of the value creation is behind it as opposed to they used to go public when they were much smaller and the value creation was ahead of it. So they have been moving earlier and earlier into the private markets. And the biggest loser here, frankly, is the retail investor who's stuck yeah. at the, you know, waiting for the few remaining companies to go public, and they can't participate in the massive wealth creation that only happens from technology companies at an equity stage. I think a couple of, you know, a few decades from now, every company in the Fortune 500 is going to be a tech or tech-enabled company. If you're a non-tech company and you're somehow hanging out in the Fortune 500, wow, you've got a monopoly for the ages, right? Maybe it's just because you're just sitting on a giant field of oil. Right. Even there, some tech company is going to come along and figure out how to extract it better. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
extract it yeah. from space or railroad, some other right. place. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of railroads, I don't know what non-tech companies going to survive. And on the Fortune 500, there was a time when even the railroads were considered tech companies. So technology is just a set of things that humanity has not quite yet figured out how to make it all work just yet. So it's the forefront of innovation. And I, and I think there'll be more of those companies taking over. Anyway, long story short, yeah, I think uh, companies are staying private longer partially because they want to and partially because they can. Now, there's recently been talk of a flight of these later stage investors, uh, especially given markdowns. Uh, I don't know if they'll flee. I think they're just going to be more valuation sensitive and more careful. Uh, I think once these uh, later stage investors have established earlier or private company investing arms, they've figured out how to evaluate them. Uh, and even if they've lost a little bit of money, the wrong thing to do is to pack up and to run away. The right thing to do is take that learning and figure out what the right valuations are and where to go. Because the underlying demand for companies to stay private is not going to change. And it's not going to change until we fix the stock market. And given how many constituencies are involved in that discussion and how politicized that issue is, it could be a long time. I have a question. You know, at, over the last couple of years, as AngelList has gained more prominence amongst the startup and venture community, there's been this ongoing thought, fear, I don't know what exactly to call it, that AngelList will, you know, be the death of lots of VCs or LPs or I've or, never for the record I've never said that. I've, um how how do you think that plays out over the next five to ten years, assuming that Angelus continues on its current trajectory and continues to amass capital and great companies and Honestly I have no idea. I mean if <laughs> if I knew what the future looked like five years from now I'd play the stock market. <laughs> yeah. But, but what is the impact you would hope it could have in five. I years. hope more transparency, more democratization, more access. Um, people who have money who want to be able to put it into high quality blue chip startups should be able to do that safely, not just based on who they know. Uh, it shouldn't just be based on like personal relationships and networks. It should also be you should also be able to do it. Like I can go in the stock market and I can invest in a mutual fund and I can forget about it and participate in the wealth creation that happens with the public right. sector. Why can't I do that with the private sector? So, you know, people should be able to take like one, two, three percent of their assets, their risk assets, and put them into a balanced portfolio index fund of high quality blue chip startups and say, I don't need liquidity in 10 years, but I'm looking for an outlier and something interesting may happen here. So I'd like them to be able to participate in that. And that money should get funneled into more and more startups and make it sort of better and better for the startup community and make it easier for the startup community to raise capital when they need to without having to kowtow or play the, the network game. Um, I think that's part of it, part of what I'd like to see happen. Um, I would also like to see uh, a lot more individual angels you know, be able to write larger checks because angels add a lot of value to the companies early on. You know, before before VCs get professionally involved, angels are often the mentors and the advisors. Um, I like transparency there around the term sheets, around the way the shares are held and traded. Um, I would like to see a robust secondary market emerge. You know, we look at that right now. There's a couple others out there, but our senses are operating quasi legally, mm. um, so it's really hard to wander into that space and mm. you get blown up by the SEC at any point. Um, uh, obviously, on the talent side, I want to see us continue to uh, drive more high-quality people into working for startups than working for big companies. Um, and I want to see more and more people who are getting science, technology, math, sales, product kind of education and training and have that capability move into working for good startups. Um, so, you know, just more of the same. 
Could you imagine Angels being a public company? In the same vein that you want to give retail investors and everybody access to startups yeah. as a as a as a uh, uh, asset class, it might follow that you might also want to give all those same people the opportunity to invest in Angelist one day. Yeah, I mean, we already did do a round for Angelist on Angelist. That's, that's um, true. But that's those, true. that was accredited investor only. Right. Um, the true retail crowd may have to wait for a while. Um, the reality is Angelist is a very uh, capital efficient business. We have a total of 40 people. Um, and even that is probably more than we need right now. Um, so we've tried to run it through code and community. We stay lean on purpose so that we don't end up being like a fat middleman. We want to be a very thin, neutral platform. You notice how we don't have a fancy logo. We don't use a lot of colors or buttons on our site because we try and be invisible and transparent. Um, model more after Craigslist. It's about the mm-hmm. community. It's not about us. Um, so for, for those reasons, I think we're going to stay pretty thin and efficient. We don't need a lot of capital. Um, I don't see us being a public company anytime soon. I mean, a long ways from that. <laughs> We'd have to be making a lot of money first. And right. if anything, we just run too cheaply right now. Okay. We, 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 we don't charge for talent yet. We were mm-hmm. literally just starting for the first experiments on that. Are the hurdles to, to having a, a second market primarily regulatory or what are the, what are the big concerns there? Or are there, yeah. are there, other concerns in terms of like product and, and alignment of interests or yeah we'd love to create a functioning secondary market uh, there are regulatory issues which is uh, information uh, availability if one side has more information than the other then it can be insider trading the insider trading laws apply to private companies as well believe it or not um, secondly uh, there's all these weird regulations around how long you have to hold the stock and who you can sell it to and so on but actually the biggest impediment is the companies themselves because the private companies, often the VCs have written in clauses into the term sheets and into the incorporation docs that prevent the company from having a vibrant secondary trading without the VC's permission. And then it's in the VC's interest to only let you trade with them <laughs> or with their chosen few friends so you don't get a true liquid market going. Uh, also, employees are generally the ones who could actually benefit the most from right. it, especially right. ex-employees, but they have the least leverage in setting up a company or in dictating how the financing docs are done. But I think smart, forward-looking companies are starting to write into their formation documents that they can allow secondary trades. I think the really savvy employees are starting to ask for it up front. Like, what is your policy on that? Um, so I think the pieces that are being laid in place where a few years from now you could see real secondary trading emerging. I mean, if you could help, if Angelus could help bring some better access to liquidity to common shareholders at a lot of companies, I think that would be a big deal. Yeah, I think that the companies would have to be willing to share the kind of information that the common that the buyers would need to make an informed decision. And that's been the issue to date. The companies are too secretive with that data. Public company reporting is very onerous, um, probably more onerous than it needs to be, but some of it is there for a very good reason. Um, you need certain amounts of data before you can make a buying decision. So uh, we only have a couple more minutes. Um, I guess my last question, I, I assume you're uh, reasonably biased on this answer, but uh, if you were a younger, newer VC mm-hmm. trying to start a fund for the first time, would you, would you do that using AngelList Syndicates? And do you think that that product over time will help folks get started and and build what could be really meaningful venture capital firms. Yeah, I mean, we have 200 
operator angels right now on angels who have done syndicated deals and are investing their own capital and then pulling in more capital behind them. So every single one of them is essentially building up a track record for when they could go raise their own fund. Now, a bunch of them uh, get to that point and some of them decide to go raise their own fund because they want to be professional VCs with management fees and be in the business for a long time. But most of them choose not to raise a fund. Uh, they just continue operating on Angelus, running syndicates because they already have an LP base. Syndicates have certain advantages over a VC fund. Uh, you know, you can spin it up when you feel like and not do it when you don't feel like. Right. The compensation model is different. You don't have management fees, but you do get deal-by-deal deal carry. So you can get some outsized wins early, like Tcon and Zach did with Cruise. You can make a lot of money very early on. Right. Um, but it mostly it allows you to preserve your freedom and flexibility. And a lot of the best investors, I think, out there are really operators, not just pure investors. And so it allows them to keep that, uh, keep one foot in each world. Um, so I, I, th- I think it's a no-brainer way to get started. If you're writing your own checks anyway, you might as well start building up a track record of making other people some money and having more of an impact by using a syndicate. And you can do a private one if you're worried about information leakage or a more public one if you're just trying to amass as much capital as possible. Unlike a normal venture fund, syndicates never close for business. A normal venture fund, you raise it every four years. Here in a syndicate, you can keep adding more backers every single day, every single meeting. So you can just build up mass. Our largest syndicates now can write multi-million dollar checks. When three years ago, they could only write a hundred thousand dollar check. Right. For a fund to write a multi-million dollar check, you have to be a, like a fifty million dollar plus fund. Um, and this is even before we have most institutions on. You know, like we don't have like fifty family offices on right now. For example, we're working on those kinds of endeavors. Um, so we, we also have products now where if, uh, uh, if an angel knows that they want to do a lot of stealth deals, or they want to do quick deals or small deals, uh, or they want to collect management fees or they want to do it for a long period of time, we have other products for them. So we do micro funds, which are these tiny VC right. funds that will be a million bucks at, at a time. Um, so we're slowly moving up the stack. Uh, but the more you move up the stack, the harder and harder it gets to automate. So I wouldn't worry about VCs who are concerned about being disrupted by us. We're not going to put people in who write $10 million checks and take board seats. But what we are going to create is more and more small investors who are right-sized for the size of the small companies that are out there. What they should be worried about is that the whole market is going small and broad. And so because of that, the opportunities with the notations and the angel syndicates and the YCs of the world, that's the direction that's moving in, not in the direction of needing bigger and bigger checks from fewer and fewer players. The industry is clearly fragmenting. Um, and then because of that, the right strategy in that market is either to fragment yourself or become a platform of some kind to enable that fragmentation. Like some VCs are running scout programs through us, actually, um, where they enable their portfolio CEOs to go out and write checks and they back those portfolio right. CEOs and then get insight in those companies for later rounds. Um, and of course, those portfolio CEOs are betting with their own money. If I was starting out in the business, I'd run a syndicate, I'd brand myself, and I'd figure out how to systematically add value to four founders. A lot of the great brands that have been built in the last decade uh, really did it by adding value to founders. YC, AngelList, First Round Capital, True Ventures, A16Z. These are all very, very founder-friendly brands. They have platform angles where they try and do things with their founders in a scalable way. Um, you know, 500 startups is another one. So it's just, it's being, it's being pro-founder in a way that other people are not being. Thank you. Um, incredibly helpful and uh, appreciate you spending the time and having us. And uh, we'll come up to do round two at AngelList 
uh, next year, which Thanks may be in a whole different. Um, I'm really excited to be a supporter of Notation. It's one of the very, very, very few funds that I've seeded. Um, I mean, I think literally the only other ones are Lemnos Labs and Unshackled. Um, and I think all of you guys are on a great mission. Um, you should continue to do lots and lots of small deals. Don't let the LP scare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, pre-seed is where the action is. Resist the urge to overly concentrate. Um, help as many founders as possible. Help them systematically and stay focused. In a long enough time frame, it will all pay off in ways that you can't even imagine looking at it now. Appreciate it, Val. Thanks Thank you, a lot. Val. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lyons, partners at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark, who are helping us with distribution and make an amazing product. You should try it. Mattermark.com. Mattermark.com.